I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. You don't think that it's time that somebody cared enough to have a dream? Why are you getting so upset? This is not about you. Yes, it is. You are a human affront to all women, and I am a woman. At some point, you gotta decide for yourself who you are. Can't let nobody make that decision for you. How do you go about getting an exorcism? I beg your pardon? Hi, this is Mark Kermode. Thanks for downloading this Kermode on Film podcast, which this week comes live from my monthly BFI show in the London South Bank MK3D. The guests on this show are Wash Westmoreland, talking about the London Film Festival and his new film Earthquake Bird, Tom Harper, director of Wild Rose and the Aeronauts, and Joanna Hogg on The Souvenir and the new BFI musical season. So sit back, relax, and stay tuned. So, look, let's start with flying by the seat of our pants. If anyone has anything within reason that they would like to ask, go. One of our guests just before we came in said, "You can ask me anything at all," and uh, so we will do. So, if anyone has anything they'd like to ask, stick your hand up, and we will run the microphone. Yes. Yeah, so, I'm going to start there because your hand came up very, very smartly. Hello. Hi. Uh, big fan. Thank you. Thank um, you very much. You're starting well. <laughs> just in case you didn't hear that, he said, "Big fan." Okay. <laughs> so, over on this side, lot to live up to. <laughs> My favourite um, side of the auditorium. Hello. What's hi. your name? Uh, Barney. Barney. Hello, Barney. Yes. Hi. Um, I was just wondering if you'd seen any films at the London Film Festival. Now, Specifically Bar- The Irishman. Now, now Barney, th- 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 this is a brilliant question, and here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to come back to you at the end of our... Because that will then lead very nicely into a, into a segment that we're going to do. But I'm going to ask the audience to collectively pretend that you didn't do that yet, OK? So when you do it, it'll seem like just seamless, OK? So that's Barney there. Forget that you've seen Barney, OK? Yes, let's go there, gentlemen there with the glasses. Hi. Uh, my name's Dave. Hello, um, Dave. I was wondering... Hello, Dave. Hello. You're my wife now, Dave. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> it's okay. Years. Years I've had that. Um, and, and I'm sure that every time it's funny, right? It's every like, time. you know, you always have a it chuckle. It gets better. Yeah, okay. <laughs> um, I was just wondering, I've uh, been thinking about remake culture. There's a lot of sort of unasked for remakes around at the moment. Unasked for remakes. That's unasked a lovely for phrase. remakes. Like the new Terminator film... Uh, there's uh, Doctor Sleep coming out, and yeah, well, well sequ- yeah, sequels, yeah. remakes, those reboots, the sort of Joker origin. That's uh, you know the third iteration of the Joker in cinema. But um, I actually went to uh, a film at the London Film Festival, uh, which was a documentary about uh, The Exorcist, which seemed to me to be a remake or sequel of a BBC documentary. Did you plant him? around? <laughs> Did you literally plant him in the audience? We have never met, have we? Never. But you are my new best friend, Dave. <laughs> no, so, there, there was indeed a documentary uh, at uh, the LFF, which is called Leap of Faith, uh, which is directed by the guy who made the, the Alien documentary and the Psycho Shower scene. How fabulous for reminding everybody that 21 years ago, 
21 years ago, a team of young filmmakers made what I think is still the definitive Exorcist documentary. And we might return to that subject later on in the show. This is like the whole thing is planned. <laughs> You're my wife now, Dave. <laughs> okay. Um, on, the, on, the more, can I just say, on the more general theme of uh, sort of, you know, sequels and remakes and reboots, I know that sometimes it appears like that. Actually, historically, if you look at the history of particularly Hollywood production, it's no more or less now than it ever was. Most of the films that we think of as great Hollywood productions are quite frequently reiterations of something which has been on screen before. If you go right back to the silent days, I mean, all the old Dracula, Frankie, all those things have all been made umpteen times. I, I, I know that, like, last week when we were doing the review show on the BBC, it was like there was the sequel to Zombieland, and then there was, you know, there was the sequel to Maleficent, and then there was the sequel to Shaun the Sheep. And actually, the Shaun the Sheep Farmageddon is one of the best things I've seen in age. I have not laughed so much in years. So, but it's, it's, no, it's no worse or better. It's just that sometimes it is possible to go to a multiplex and just see nothing but, you know nothing but, but sequels on. But there is as much more original content probably now being made than there ever was before. And the, and the difference between remakes and reboots, the, the line has become so blurred nowadays that that's why I think it's, you know, sequels, remakes, reboots. They, but they've always been around. Let's take a couple more. Let's go over... Yeah, we'll go there since you're, you're right there and then we'll come down, we'll come down here and we'll go there first. Hi. Did I Hello. The, um, Who are you? Oh, Zahid. My name's Zahid. Hello, how'd you do? I'm good, thanks. Um, just wondered what you made of Scorsese and Coppola criticising Marvel films. <laughs> and yeah, I mean, C Coppola just just chimed in on this today, right? Yeah. Uh, what what did he say? Because I I just saw a headline that he that he said he had. To, I mean, I saw, saw the Scorsese thing. What did Coppola say? Um, I'm paraphrasing, but he went further than Scorsese and said there were disgusting films and morally repugnant, that sort of thing. Okay, that's just stupid. Um, <laughs> no, I mean, here's, here's the thing. You can like or dislike Marvel movies, and you can like or dislike... This isn't a Marvel DC thing either. They are cinema. And, you know, I mean, uh, th there was... Uh, uh, Ryan Johnson was asked this. And he said, look, I think Martin Scorsese has the right to say whatever Martin Scorsese wants to say because he's the guy who made Taxi Driver and King of Comedy and Raging Bull and all the rest of it. And that's fine. But I also think if you... I mean, I have a, I have a teenage son and I'm, despite the fact that I'm nearly 100 years old, I have in the past few years spoken to some people who were born this side of the century. And if you see the emotional impact that, like, Avengers... You know, Infinity was had on them, and it, it, to say that that isn't cinema is just foolish. I mean, I remember, you know, I remember when I was a kid going to see movies that I'm sure that there were filmmakers who said, "Well, they aren't cinema." You know, Jason and the Argonauts and all that stuff. But they are cinema. They may not be your cinema, not your cinema, but you know, they are cinema. And I, I have to say, it slightly grieves me when I hear filmmakers whose work I admire and respect saying this new thing isn't cinema. And it's the same I feel with you know Spielberg saying. That you know, streaming isn't. It is cinema. It's a different type of cinema, and uh, it just always reminds me of that thing about if you're young and you listen to music, and your parents go, "Well, that's not music. He's not even playing that. Mm -hmm. Is he a boy or a girl? I can't. He's you know, he's mime. I can't <laughs> call that. You know, it's, we can't hear the words." And so my son recently has taken to playing very loudly music by a band called Death Grips. Well, to me, death grips sound like somebody is knocking down the building next door to the house. But that's because I'm 112 years old. And, you know, so it, it just, it's just like that. It's just like the person who put his foot through the television when the Sex Pistols were on Bill Grundy. It's not 
for you, but it is. They are cinema. They are thriving and healthy part of cinema. Some of them are good, some of them not so good, but you can't pretend that they aren't cinema. And incidentally, both of those filmmakers, who I admire very much, have also made duff films. And you don't suddenly turn around and say, well, it's not cinema. You know, so anyway, uh, there was a question down here. Let's just run a microphone down to you. Thanks. Hi. Hello. Hi, my name is Marette. Hello, Marette. Um, I recently went to see Joker. Yes. Um, yeah, it's hmm. okay, you're forgiven. <laughs> <laughs> well, I will say it's... I'm never going to get that time back in my life, never mind. Um, but the thing is, is that I watched it and just thought, my God, you really did take riffs of Taxi Driver hmm. and of other films and you just literally lifted it. And really literally lifted it in some places. Yeah. So I'm just wondering, for you, where's the line between inspiration and theft? That's a brilliant <laughs> question. I mean, the... the, the, the the shortcoming, I think, I like Joker generally. Um, the shortcoming with it is, is that it does not have any subtlety. So when it's doing King of Comedy, I mean, the thing is, people are saying, well, it's, it, you know, it's, it's ripping off King of Comedy. It's literally got Robert De Niro in it, playing a character who basically could be Rupert Popkin 20 years after he, he you know, kidnapped Jerry Langford. Because that's what Popkin would have turned into. Because the whole point about Popkin is he's not nice. He's, you know, he's narcissistic and all the rest of it. And I think the, you know, the nods to, to God's Lonely Man and Taxi Driver, they're not subtle. And the bit when they're in the, the, the part of Gotham that's kind of Times Square, and there's all the, you know, like the Zorro the Gay Blade and the, all the, 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 the movie hoarding stuff. None of those riffs are subtle. But then again, some of them are, are good riffs and some of them are done better than other ones. And I, I love King of Comedy. I think it's Scorsese's finest film. I haven't seen Irishman yet. I'm really looking forward to it. But um, I think it's his best film. And I think you invoke King of Comedy at your peril. And I thought that, he, that, uh, that they got away with it. And of course, it's particularly interesting because every time the director of Joker opens his mouth, I hate him because he says stupid things about, you know, oh, well, comedy's been killed by woke culture. And you just say, oh, shut up, you fat old man. You know, but, but it's, not tr it's not true, you know. But, um, but I think the film is actually pretty good. And I love the fact that it's created this... Uh, you know, this, this dissonance. I lo like the arguments that it's created. And I know some people really, really detest it. Some people really, really detest it. And that's, gr that's fine. But um, I don't have a problem with it riffing on other films. Also, I'm a horror film fan, and every horror film is full of sort of nods and winks to other horror films. It's just a question of whether they do it well or, you know, inventively or not. And I, th I, th I kind of thought it did. Uh, let's do one more, and then we will move on. I know, let's go to over there. You're on. Uh, thank you. This is purely off the top of my head. Yes, just thought about this. Um, I was just wondering if you had seen any films from the London Film Festival this year. Well, you know, it's interesting <laughs> that you should bring that up. Yeah, so the London Film Festival has just finished, and we are going to uh, we're going to be talking about some of the the, the films that that won and some of the films that played here. I did an onstage with Ryan Johnson for Knives Out, which I really really liked, and I thought that Ryan Johnson was really interesting, particularly in relation to that sort of previous question. So there will be coming up in the very near future a whole section on the London Film Festival, which we've just knocked together just in response to your question, because that's that's how responsive we are. So thank you very much for that. Uh, moving on. Uh, I don't know whether any of you have noticed, but uh, this, is, this is our Here's the Thing section. We now are very proud to say that we have, after four years of doing this show, we have our first sponsor. Look, we are now sponsored by Kodak. 
Now, I'm, I'm really pleased about this for a number of reasons. Firstly, because I've been banging on about film, you know, as opposed to digital. I have nothing against digital, but I think that film and digital should live hand in hand together. And I'm a great advocate of people being allowed or able to shoot on film if they want or need to. I think that digital is perfectly wonderful and valid, but I also think there's no point in, you know, throwing away the past to make way for the future. And so I'm absolutely thrilled that Kodak are now uh, involved. Also, I like the fact that I was trying to figure out how to make that K at the beginning of Kerr mode. We haven't quite done that yet. But you see, I think, I think that would work kind of nicely. Plus, if you've been in the cinema recently, you will know that the great success story of uh, recent uh, months has been Bait, which is now, and this sounds like damning with faint praise, okay? Bait has now become officially the most successful Cornish film ever made. <laughs> which is rather like me being a member of the most successful skiffle and western blues band in the northwest metropolitan area, okay? <laughs> so Bait has done brilliantly. It's taken something like £380,000. It cost nothing at all. It was made by Mark Jenkin absolutely on, uh, on Kodak film, which he used uh, an old clockwork camera. They shot it as you would have done early silence, that it was shot silently and then all totally post-synced. And the film's become a runaway success, and so much of it is to do with the way it looks. I know, I read a couple of critics said that, um, that they thought that the grain or the kind of scratches like that had been artificially added to the film. None of that is true. If you were here when Mark Jenkins came on the show, you'd know that it, it, what he said was, Mark Jenkins said, we did this the best we possibly could because he was developing it all in his studio in Newlyn and everything about it, you can feel the texture, you can feel the, you know, the handmade quality of it. So I'm very, very glad that uh, Kodak are, are on board. I'm a great supporter of film and I think it's a, you know, it's, it's a wonderful thing for people to be able to... Uh, I mean, there was, a, there was a time not so long ago when everyone was saying, oh, digital's coming and that's the end of it, we no longer have to use film stock. No, you don't have to. But due to the work of people like, you know, Chris Nolan and Quentin Tarantino and, uh, you know, Paul Thomas Anderson, who all said, we want to shoot on 35. But the great thing is being able to shoot on 16, being able to shoot on different formats, which is all to do with film continuing to thrive in the 21st century, which I think is a really, really great thing. Now, on the subject of 21, have I mentioned that 21 years ago, this Halloween, Nick and I... <laughs> made this documentary, The Fear of God. It's the first project we've ever, we ever worked on together. And, uh, and we've now been joined at the hip ever since. And we were very lucky that it was the very last moment that it was possible to get everybody, because everyone was still with us. Obviously, we've lost a number of the sort of key participants. Um, the documentary that played at the LFF, which is called Leap of Faith, is a long and very, very eloquent interview with William Friedkin, giving his side of the story. What we did in 98, which was then the 25th anniversary of The Exorcist, was to attempt to get every side of the story, but specifically to get Blatty and Friedkin together to discuss the film. Anyway, we're trying right now to get Fear of God back on BBC iPlayer in time for Halloween in the longest version, which you assembled for festivals, which I think is about 78, 80 minutes long. So 75, okay. Um, and we just thought we'd indulge ourselves by showing you a sequence from Fear of God. Um, this is something that's it's now kind of passed into legend that when Friedkin was making the, the film, he used some quite outlandish techniques to get results and responses from his, uh, from his, from his actors. But I think this was the first time any, the, you know, the cast and crew actually talked about it. So this is a clip from The Fear of God, which we made 21 years ago, on the subject of William Friedkin and guns.
Billy can be totally irascible. Billy has reduced me to tears on more than one occasion. But he also liked to stimulate the actors. So he would sometimes shoot off a gun or something when he wanted someone to look startled. That's really what pissed me off. And I told him, I said, never do that again. You know, I'm an actor. I don't need all these artificial stimulants. And he shot his shotgun. They're this close to my head. I said, you son of a bitch. How dare you do that? What if you went a little bit to the right? And freaking says, it's all right. We got Jack Nicholson in the wings. Billy would fire guns all the time. Well, the actors got used to this. And they'd come in the morning, and, and I had a good relationship with them. And, uh, like, Max would walk in and say, good morning, Owen. Uh, where are the guns this morning? I said, well, there's a 45 behind that wall and a shotgun behind that one. Um, he said, thank you very much. He had a total freedom, I think. And, uh, and, of course, he behaved like a man with total freedom and total power. No, I enjoyed very much working with him. Although, although, although it was, he used maybe uh, sometimes methods that I was not used to. My dear friend Billy Friedkin is a maniac, <laughs> and I love him, uh, but he's a maniac. <laughs> so we're, we're going to try, as I said, we're trying to get um, uh, Fear of God back on the BBC, on the iPlayer for uh, Halloween. Uh, so if we do, I'll tweet a thing about it. Do go back and have a look at it, because I, I think it still stands up. And I have to say, it stands up more to do with the work that Nick did than I, because I'd never, I'd never done a documentary before. And the very first thing we shot was me walking down the steps in Georgetown. Re, uh, I had to recite this thing to camera. I had to say, and here we are at the steps in Georgetown, and it was here, and I fell, and I tripped, and I fell down the steps. So anyway, um, I should also mention that we have now launched a Patreon. Is it Patreon or Patreon? How do you pronounce it, Nick? Patreon page for um, Kermit on Film, which is the podcast version uh, of this and also the show itself. Um, you can Google it. You can go to the Patreon. There are, there are various different kind of levels in which you can get involved, but it's to do with you know, extra content on the, uh, on, the, uh, on the Kermit on Film podcast. We've got a whole bunch. Look at these. Look, look. We have, we have these. We have mugs with my mug with mug and... Uh, <laughs> And, and badges and stuff. Anyway, look, if you, if you get a chance, go to, uh, just, just Google Kermit on Film Patreon. It'll tell you a whole bunch of things. And it's just a way of getting, you know, extra content that we haven't done before. And that's a fantastic, that's a fantastic picture by Julie Edwards of me, which makes me look much more fabulous than I actually do. Um, so, uh, moving on, we mentioned before, I think it was last uh, week, last month, that this, the, the Gemini Man was opening in cinemas. We were talking about the LFF. And one of the things that's happened with the LFF and Gemini Man is this new process of de-aging actors, okay? So firstly, how many of you have seen Irishman? Okay, so some. How many of you have seen Gemini Man? Very few. <laughs> okay, so in Gemini Man, essentially what they did was they took Will Smith now, and then they got a younger version of Will Smith from The Fresh Prince, and then they put the digital dots on Will Smith's face. So when he was acting, they digitally replaced his old face with his young face. Do you see that happen? It's very, very fleeting. But okay, so they make Will Smith looks like look like he looked when he was in Fresh Prince of Bel Air. 
In The Irishman, even if you've only seen the trailer, because I haven't seen the film yet, I'm seeing it next week, um, they've had to de-age the actors digitally, so you get Robert De Niro at various sort of different points of his life. I think the youngest he is is when he's in the army, so that's like 20s or 30s. Then it goes all the way through to the later stages. Obviously, later on, this is just kind of you know, ordinary prosthetics makeup. And in that Exorcist clip we just showed you, we, you saw some of Dick Smith, who did the makeup for The Exorcist, also famously did Little Big Man and Godfather and so all those aging so that kind of later on aging technique is still very similar to the way it used to be of course aging actors has generally been done just with stuff like makeup and prosthetics we're looking back at Benjamin Button recently and if anybody remember this film anyone like Benjamin Button it's on it's not it's really quite dull and the thing is he's aging backwards but that is really great aging makeup okay again that's very much like what um Marlon Brando was wearing in The Godfather if you've ever seen The Hunger Dick Smith did the makeup for The Hunger and there's a whole thing at the end of it that as David Bowie gets older his head gets bigger and bigger because the prosthetics on his head get really really so by the end of it he's like this kind of stick insect with a very very big head so here's a question of the people that have seen Gemini Man so who's seen Gemini Man did you, did you find the de-aging of Will Smith convincing or weird? More convincing than Irishman, okay. Because it's a different technique, because they've done the thing about completely reconstructing a virtual act, a synthespian, which I believe is the word. Okay, well, we're going to see much more of this, because basically it is the future. However, this picture is great, because look, the most remarkable thing about Robert De Niro there is nothing to do with making him look younger, but let's be honest, it's all to do with making him look taller. <laughs> because... <laughs> okay, so look, I, I, I have certain reservations about it, but I think... Um, you know, I think it's one of those things that's going to, it's, it's going to run and run. I think they are getting kind of better and better at doing it. Anyway, so we mentioned the LFF before. The prize winners uh, at the LFF, we had, we got, we got the stills for it, Nick. So Monos won uh, Best Film, which I'm seeing tomorrow. Has anyone seen Monos? Is it absolutely brilliant? Yes, I'm going to take that as yes. Fantastic score by Mika Levy, which I'm already familiar with. Uh, the award for First Feature went to Atlantics, and the award for uh, Best Documentary went to Wright Wyatt. White, right, 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 I'm going to do that again. Went to White Riot. Thank you very much. The uh, chair of the, uh, of the jury uh, was Wash Westmoreland, who also has a new feature uh, out very, very soon. Please welcome to the stage filmmaker and jury uh, head, Wash Westmoreland. So we're going to talk about your work in just a bit. Let's talk about everybody else's first. Was it a good festival? It was a fantastic festival, yeah. Um, on the jury, there were five of us. And sometimes when you're on a jury, you're hunting for that one film that you can all get behind. There was like, out of the ten films, five of them we were all raving about. We thought they were brilliant. You said there were two other titles that you wanted to give special mention to. Yeah, St Maud, which is a new film by British director Rose Glass. Absolutely brilliant. And Honey Boy by Shia LaBeouf, which he's making about his... His own childhood playing his own father recipe for total self-indulgent disaster but it's actually brilliant I'm, I'm seeing monos tomorrow without giving it away just tell me how just tell me how fabulous it is because i'm so excited about it i think it's just a top film it's um you know really visionary cinema cinematography is amazing it's set in colombia in the mountains and in the jungle uh, a lot of young actors giving absolutely 
faultless performances and really a new way of storytelling. I think in 1959 you had 400 blows, gave us a window into adolescence that was new cinema. I think that is the equivalent today in this global economy where the inequality is so bad that young people are having their childhoods taken away and they're given an AK-47. Um, I also, you, you had a film of your own uh, in the this, festival. Yes. Uh, do you want to tell us, a little, we'll, we'll watch the trailer in a minute, but just say a little bit about it first. It's called Earthquake Bird, and it's, a, it's set in Japan in the 1980s, starring Alicia Vikander, and she's working as a translator who seems to have everything together until she sort of gets drawn into this bizarre love triangle and becomes a prime suspect in a horrific murder. So I kind of call it a Tokyo noir. Right, let's see the trailer. What do you say about the future? Come on. We have something no one else could share. Don't you know that? I do. I know what I'm feeling. It's not right at all. You must trust me. You're the only person who ever really saw who I was. I feel like something really bad's gonna happen. So, so I saw it. I, I didn't know the book at all, and I hadn't read the book, which I actually think, from from my point of view, was an advantage because I went in knowing nothing at all, other than you know Alicia Vikander and uh, Riley Keough and you know some, and, and your stuff because I'm a big fan of. Calais and uh, Still Alice and Quinceanera, which I think is it, just one of the great unsung masterpieces of modern cinema, and I will go on about that a little bit more. Um, and what I really liked about this was I had no idea where it was going at the beginning. I didn't know anything about the story at all, but very, very quickly you get the sense that she is somebody, the central character played by Alicia Vikander, who believes that, she, that, that death follows her, that disaster follows her, and there's this lovely kind of... Can you explain the metaphor of what the earthquake bird is? Because it's kind of explained at one point. Yeah, the earthquake bird is, after an earthquake, a minor earth tremor um, in Japan, um, a a character tells Alicia that there's this sound that is a bird that just sings after earthquakes, sort of like a, almost like a supernatural um, animal that's triggered by an earthquake. And one of the questions of the film is, is the earthquake bird real or is it in her head? And that's the question of the movie. There's so much of it is in her own head. So what we, we sort of see the story through this unreliable narrator perspective. Mm-hmm. And as we become sucked into it, we start to realise that she's becoming... I don't want to give anything away, but she, she's becoming more and more removed from what would be a sort of rational view of the world. Is that fair? Yeah, very much so. I think she's gone to Japan to get away from her own past and define her life anew. Um, but certain events that are triggered by these two new people she encounters start to make her... Very very unsure of who she is or what's going on. Now, she, when the first time I met Alicia Vikander and I gave her a Kermode Award for a performance in a royal affair, and I didn't realise that she had learnt a whole language in order to do that thing because being, you know, dumb, um, I didn't really, you know, Danish and Swedish sound the same to me. I understand that they're not, but this was, she, so she learnt an entire language 
from scratch in order to do that role. And in the case of this, there are whole sections when she appears to be speaking fluent Japanese. Well, I'd heard that story too, that she learnt Danish to do a royal affair. So when I was thinking, who is an actor out there who would be committed enough to learn Japanese to do this role? I thought of Alicia immediately. And sure enough, she just loves a challenge. She just loves to kind of ace it. And um, she just set about like taking Japanese lessons and just drilling herself over and over again in the hair and makeup chair, our hair and makeup artist Wakana would literally go through this, like all this dialogue over and over and over. And then about halfway through the film, it was going so well, I was like, there's a big moment near the end where she melts down. I said, do you think we can do it in one take? Just one take, no cutting away. And she goes, that's what I was thinking, that's what I want to do. So she gives a three-minute speech where the character completely melts down in a language that is absolutely not her own. And the, the, the litmus test is, has that been seen by people for whom it's their first language and does she get it right? <laughs> well, yeah, of course we had to test it with uh, Japanese audiences and people have been really astonished and the jaws are on the floor and they say it not only sounds like correct Japanese, but it sounds like someone who has been living in Japan and picked up a certain ease and slang with the language. One of the things with your movies, you have done brilliant work with great female actors. You did great work with Kurt, with Kira uh, Knightley in Colette, obviously um, with Julianne Moore and Still Alice. Tell me about Riley Keough, because again, we mentioned uh, Charlotte Buff before. She'd worked with Charlotte Buff before, and I think in this film she's terrific, but she appears to be really great in most things. Yeah, she's an amazing actress, and she's incredible to work with. Her and Alicia had been friends before, and... Oh, they the, knew each other before the film? They knew each other before, okay. and there's this weird compatibility between the characters alike like yin and yang, they're opposites, but they have something that pulls them together, and they start to have this Borgesian transference happens. This what? Borgesian transference. Hang on. Anyone? <laughs> <laughs> no, seriously, does anyone know what that word means? Has anyone seen performance? You know, at the end yeah, of the yeah. performance, when the bullet throughs, goes through Mick Jagger's brain, it splits open a portrait of Borges, who is a Latin American writer, who wrote about transference, which is what happens between the lead two characters in performance. I now feel like the stupidest <laughs> person on earth. And, and you see, that's what you get from this show. It's not just fun, but it's like educational as well. We could get a grant for this. Okay, so, but, so that's... Yeah, so we worked it out between these two characters. I'm looking at you in Lily... a whole other way now. because I'm just... <laughs> Lily and Lucy, they meet and they seem very opposite. One seems very kind of together and the other seems very sort of scattered and a little lost. And they gradually exchange characteristics through the story. How do you think of the film? Do you think of it as a British film or a European film or a Japanese film? And I ask European, obviously, in light of everything that's happening at the moment. <laughs> I think of it, I guess it's a, a film that sort of breaks national boundaries in a way because it's about foreigners in Japan, essentially, and the uh, efforts to make communication between our lead, Alicia, and uh, some Japanese characters, and can she break through and make that connection with them on a sort of face-to-face -face level? And, you know, so I think it is essentially a film about, um, you know, the interface of Japan and the West. Can I ask you a little bit about Quintanera, which... It was, I think over here it was called Echo Park LA, is that right? That's right, yeah. They changed the title because they didn't think British people were better pronounced Quintanera. 
But it would have been a great name for charades because, you know, who is going to get like a five-syllable word beginning with Q? You would be like miming all kinds of strange things. I loved this film when it came out and I was a huge, I'm still a huge fan of it. And in fact, when Nick and I were making Secrets of Cinema and we were doing um, one about Christmas movies and we started talking about Quinceanera because you can see it as a kind of, as a version of the, of the nativity story. Yeah, it, it has, a, there's a, a character called Magdalena, uh, but uh, she gets pregnant and it seems to be a, a sort of virgin birth. So it's combining like, you know, the myth of Mary Magdalene and the myth of Mary, the Virgin Mary. So it's like the two archetypes of women that are sort of at the centre of Christianity. Uh, I, does the film get the appreciation that it should? Because I, I honestly think it's it's a great unsung gem. Well, thank you so much for that. It was, uh, you know, it was a small film. We made it on like $200,000 in our neighbours' houses using a lot of our friends acting in the film who've never acted before. And the way it sort of took off into the world was astonishing to both me and uh, my co-writer, co-director and late husband Richard Glatzer. And so when people remember it now, it means a lot. And we're actually, next year is its 15th year anniversary so it's the Quinceanera of Quinceanera. Oh wow! So we're going to have a big party and Chalo Gonzalez, who is the Sam Peckinpah veteran, who is the third lead in the movie, he was 80 when he did the film. Now I think he's approaching 95, and he's still around and he's still kicking. So we're going to have a big party, and are he's going to throw would down. Would you do a screening here at the BFI? Would I'd love to. Okay, if you do, can I host it? Because I just I <laughs> love this. Film. How many of you have seen it? Okay, exactly. So come along. We'll do, we'll do a great big 15, 15. No, on, you're that, on. It's a done I'd love deal, to do right? that. Fine, there we go. That'd be great. Thank you. And, you know, just briefly, obviously, you know, you, you have worked with very, very uh, successful uh, actors and you've had very, very high-profile uh, uh, films. Of all the stuff that you've done, and you can't say this now, what's the, what's, what are you most proud of? What's the one that stuck with you the most? You know, um, I'm proud of all of them. Of course you say that. It's like having children. Who's your favourite child? Sure. But in the three films I've made recently, I got to work with Julianne Moore and Still Ellis and Kira in Colette and Alicia Vikander in Earthquake Bird. I just think, you know, I'm from Leeds. <laughs> I, I, you know, I didn't grow up with lofty ambitions uh, and I've got to work with some of the world's finest actresses and I just feel incredibly privileged that I've, I've learned so much from working with them and had such a great experience and I'm so proud of those three films as a kind of trilogy. In the, in the case of Still Alice, I, I'm sure that many people have said this to you, if, if you have first-hand experience of, of Alzheimer's, whether early onset or Alzheimer's, I thought that what Still Alice did was a very brilliant and sensitive job of putting a very complicated uh, subject up on screen. And I, I know many people, and I include myself in this, who have some experience of it, who feel the same way. Was there any part of you that was worried about dealing with that subject? I'm worried about getting it right because the book is so beloved in the Alzheimer's community and it kind of provides a template of how to deal with one of the most difficult things you can possibly deal with, which is your own memories dissolving and your own sense of identity being completely reduced and challenged. So uh, there was already just this huge audience out there who loved Lisa Genova's book. So 
and it's very much from inside Alice's head, so the challenge was, and the responsibility was to get that right as a film and to put you in her shoes, that the audience understands things in the film that only Alice understands and other people in the scene don't understand. So you're just rooting for her yeah. to get through this social occasion without forgetting that word or without making an obvious uh, faux pas. So it becomes like very stressful for an audience member if you're truly invested in the film because you just want her to you know, keep connected to who she really is, which is, goes back to the title, that she is still Alice at the very end of the film. I think it's a, a really fine piece of work. Um, I really, really like uh, Earthquake Bird, and I just love to pieces Quintanilla, and we are going to do that next year. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you, Mark. Love it's been a great you. pleasure. Thank you, everybody. Westmoreland. We're not going to have any trouble organising that, are we? It'll be fine. I mean, there's a, the BFI bods are here. It's fine. Yeah, so it's, we can. We just we'll fix a date that'll make it work. Okay, uh, coming attractions time. I'd like to show you the trailer for a film which is coming to a UK cinemas. I think on November the fourth. Hold on to your seats. Are you the widow Wren? Amelia Wren. And who might you be? James Glacier. I'm a meteorologist. I believe the weather can be predicted. I need you and your balloon to help me. Women don't belong in balloons on show. This is absurd. Your reputation is built on paper. And my reputation is built on screens. I hated you going up in that balloon. I do not wish to lose you to any more foolishness. It's where I found the greatest happiness. The possibility of weather prediction could save lives. We are scientists, not fortune tellers. You are the only person who could fly us higher than anyone has ever been. Five, four, three, two. Please welcome the director of Aeronauts, Tom Harper. So, Tom, um, I kind of felt like we've already had you on the show because we did a, a whole thing with uh, Jesse Buckley and Nicole um, about Wild Rose. Yes, which not, was, not, not that long ago. No, no, not that long ago. You're incredibly productive. And I, and, but you and I did, we have met somewhere. Yeah, we met in the Soho screening rooms, which we, yeah. Mr. Young's screening Yeah, rooms, yeah. exactly. Okay. So, um, I went to see this uh, last week, and all I knew was that you directed it, and I liked your previous film very much, and uh, and I knew nothing about the obviously the title Aeronauts kind of should have given something away. My um, my kids actually were pretty disappointed when they found out it wasn't the Octonauts the movie. <laughs> really? <laughs> um, but they. Uh... So here's the thing. I you know I, I I knew your name and I knew the cast name and so what I had in mind what I had in mind was this kind of character study you know with two characters doing a lot of talking. I am really scared of heights. <laughs> and about half an hour into the film, we're up in a balloon and people are starting to hang out of the side of things and I 
<laughs> literally nearly wet myself. <laughs> and uh, I, I had no idea how vertiginous it was going to be. And it reminded me of, I forget the name, the Robert Zemeckis feature film that was based on the Man on Wire documentary, the story of Philip Petit. But the one I knew that I knew, this is a feature film about a guy who tightrope walked between, you know, the, between the, 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 the Twin Towers. In the case of this, I didn't. And the thing that struck me most about it, and we'll talk about the rest of the part of the story, is it is really impressively high up. You have created a real atmosphere of hanging out of the side of a terrifying balloon. Um, it's available in IMAX as well, because I only saw, I just saw it in Ordinary. It's available, there's an IMAX print of it as well? There is, yeah. It's, it's, really, uh, that's, it's kind of at its best in IMAX, really, because you really get the, the whole scope of the vistas and the vertiginous quality. So did you come to it first and foremost as a character piece or as a spectacle? I think a combination of the two. I think there's, there's sort of three things that I found particularly inspiring. One is I've always been interested in the weather, um, which is obviously not the most glamorous of, of um, <laughs> interests. But my grandfather was really into measuring rain and uh, thermometer, you know, the temperature, and he had all sorts of... Was he a seafaring man? He was, actually, in the right. Navy, yeah. Okay. Um, he had all sorts of sort of uh, hocus-pocus predictions about what was going to happen. It was invariably wrong. So there was, there was that. And then I, you know, when reading about it, I was, um, I was amazed to learn that, you know, just um, 150 years ago, in about eight, well, a bit longer, 170 years ago, in, in sort of, I think it was 1855 or something like that, someone stood up in the House of Parliament and said, you know, uh, with the right funding and research in the, in, in the near future, we may be able to predict the weather 24 hours in advance. And not only was he laughed down, but he was ejected from the Commons because people thought it was such, so preposterous. <laughs> Um, they thought we would never be able to understand the chaos of the sky. So I, I found that very interesting. I also was very inspired by the actual flights themselves and the kind of the lengths that people would go to to expand our, our knowledge of the world. So, and, then, and then you had these sort of two very interesting characters, uh, or two characters in particular that I was interested in. One was James Glacier, the, me the pioneering meteorologist, and another was, a, was a, um, an aeronaut called Sophie Planchard, who, who lived slightly earlier. Now, the film says inspired by true events at the beginning. So how truthful is what we see on screen? How much is invention? Well, the whole thing was inspired by this wonderful book called Falling Upwards by... by which is a great you know, title. It is, yeah. Cool. Uh, who's, which is by Richard Holmes. And, and there, was, there was this one story um, that particularly grabbed my attention uh, in 1862. This, this flight, the mammoth, that went up to 36,000 feet, which is higher than anyone's been either before or since without... That the, did actually happen. That did actually happen. Right. Um, but that one flight on its own, I mean... James Glacier was a meticulous scientist and he just sat down and spent the entire 90 minutes of the flight uh, taking measurements. Yeah. And they didn't have any conversations, they didn't talk at all. So that was clearly not quite enough to sustain... <laughs> so Eddie, Eddie Redmayne read that version of the script and said no. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> but there were all these other flights and these amazing things that happened. You know, So everything. So I would say 90% of what happens in the film did actually happen on one flight or another, but they just didn't all happen at the same time. So it's a sort of amalgam of a number of different flights and, and characters. Okay, so w w without wishing to seem really foolish, because I, I know nothing about, uh, you know, I've, I've, been, I've been up in a balloon for one of my birth my birthdays. <laughs> enjoy it? Scared the living daylights out of me. <laughs> I mean, my, my wife got me for a birthday treat. She, she, she drove us somewhere. I didn't know where I was going. And we got there. It was a hot air balloon. And we went up in a hot air balloon. And I'm really frightened of heights. <laughs> but you some know. people find that it's not as scary as they think it will be. When you get to a certain height, it yeah. stops being scary. The first 20 feet are really terrifying. Yeah. And then you get to a certain height. I thought the thing, one of the things that I found most remarkable about it is you can be quite high up and still hear people having conversations on the ground. It's amazing, isn't it? And there is a, there's a, there's you can a really moment. give people a hell of a fright. Yeah. 
yeah. floating over that's the top right. of yeah. But there's a moment in the film when they hear something because of the way the weather is working that they think they're hearing the bells from down in the ground and they're sort of miles up because sound does carry in strange ways. Yeah. But the, the some of the things we see, like crawling around on the outside of the blue, th- are those real things that I, I mean? P- do people really do that sort of stuff? Yeah, yeah, they did, and, and we did it for real as well. We had someone climb. In fact, uh, there was a photo a second ago, but they, but you know the actors went up in the air. They were they did their own, some of their own stunts. Felicity was that's that is for real above Oxfordshire with Felicity Jones sat on the hoop exactly like that. Is um, she strapped in with a million harnesses that you've removed with digital technology? <laughs> she she was strapped in with a harness, yeah. <laughs> And we did, we did have a, um, a stunt woman climbing up the side of the balloon at 3,000 feet and standing on the top, so... so yeah, yeah I mean, that, I mean, that, that just... That literally gave me... That, gave yeah. me, that, that was contraceptively... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Walk straight for the rest of the day, frankly. Um, and in terms of the, the, you know, the interaction between those two characters, because the point is they don't know each other really beforehand. They've, you know, they've had this... That they're going to do it. And then they get into the basket... And then they go up, and then the rest of them is them in the bar, and then we flash backwards and forwards, but basically they discover each other in the basket. Tell me something about that relationship. Well, really, it's, I mean, another reason why we, we, we were drawn to this earlier aeronaut, um, Sophie Blanchard, is she was sort of the antithesis, or she was the opposite, to polar opposite to James. So James Glacier's a meticulous uh, scientist who's, who's very logical, and, um, and, and Amelia Wren is this flamboyant firecracker of a woman. So the, the thought of putting them in a confined space yeah. and watching it play out in, in real time, actually, um, was something that was really interesting to see what they would do to each other, how they would provoke each other, the conflicts that they get into, and they, and they sort of, and really, it's about you, know, you know, without wanting to kind of sum it up too much, oh, it's sure. about them sort of trying to escape their various problems in the in the real world, and and you know, on this journey, they sort of, through their interactions and their 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 developing relationship, they sort of find somehow find their place in the world. But it's a ve- you're directing two very fine actors in a very, very tight space. I mean, literally, they're in a basket yes. for a whole section of yes. it. So how, I mean, how does that work? You, you, how do you work with... I can't imagine how you'd even begin to direct two people in a basket. Well, I mean, I was fortunate they liked each other. <laughs> um, but they... Well, there was all sorts of... You know, we did all... We employed all sorts of techniques in order to do it. So sometimes we were in a helicopter and that was obviously... So for those... Um, scenes we we rehearsed it all in advance and we went through it and then just they were on their own and and they would decide themselves when to stop and move on to the next section and there are other sections where they were hanging 60 foot in the air and you know it was when I was shouting up to them and there were other so there sections, sections where we were just on the ground and I can, you know, can have a normal conversation okay but there are sections in which they're kind of self-directing in that case that they're that they're that you're flying beside them and they're in the thing and they're doing the scene and they're doing it for as long as they want to do it essentially yeah I mean we had obviously it's all kind of worked out quite meticulously beforehand. We know that you know on this flight we've got X amount to shoot uh, here, and so that's roughly 20 minutes. That's roughly 20 minutes, and that's roughly 20 minutes. Um, and we rehearsed it all. And we, you know, it's more like a play, I guess, in that sense. Some of those sections we we, we treated like a theatrical scene, and we blocked it, and we rehearsed it, and we gave notes until we were all comfortable with it, and then then up we went. What's the thing you're most proud of about it? What's the shot or the sequence that makes you go, yeah, we got that? There's a scene where she scales the scales the balloon, and um, that's I, we, I, I was pleased the way that came out. You know, we really wanted it to feel as close as possible when they weren't actually 
doing it for real that it had the same feeling and so everything we did was about trying to capture that 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 sense of reality and the feeling of what it would be like if they were doing it and so so I, I think that, we, that it's been really successful. we did that process. The other thing you managed to do, which is actually much more complicated than people think, is you managed to, to evoke the sense of cold. It's very hard to get cold on film, and it does look really cold. Well, there's a fair amount of it that was really cold. We had <laughs> we froze. Well, a, that'll help. We froze a room, and then and also the actors, you know, like really, they really put themselves through it. So, you know, we've got this the, this room down to about minus one, and they were putting their hands in, in ice water, and then coming out from a take, and then just going for it, and just keeping their body temperatures down. So a lot of that shivering, and you know, they really did it for real. So. Um, you know, we couldn't do all of it like that, but I think that all the stuff that we could do for real, whether that was flying or making it cold, or you know, that just that had an effect on them that they were then able to draw from that experience and and and, and use it. Just before we came on the show, I said, uh, "Is there anything you'd like me to to bring up?" And you said, "No, no, you can ask me anything." And uh, you said, "No, no, <laughs> and then, no, no, but I'm not going." And then. Uh, that your, your, the person from the film distributor is here said, you might mention that it's available in the UK in IMAX and also in 4DX. What the... <laughs> what is the 4DX version of that film? I haven't actually seen it in 4DX yet, but I'm, I, I think it worked really well because, you know, they go through a storm, they know, get, ever, it gets ever colder, you've got the snow, you know, immerse the yourself. The freezing and yeah. the wet and the rain and the thing, you're going to come out completely drenched. It's <laughs> yeah. 4DX, they do do that. They, they, blow, they blow cold air at you and they throw Have water. Have you been to 4DX? No, you haven't been to 4DX. I'm 57. <laughs> Has any, anyone in the audience done 4DX? Any good? Uh, good? You saw Deadpool in front. Did somebody come and punch you in the face and then swear? <laughs> Let me give you a tip. If you go and see this film in 4DX, wear a Mac, okay? Because you're going to come out absolutely covered. Will you go and see it? Will you go and see it in yeah, 4DX? Yeah, definitely. Okay, so you'll go and do the whole popcorn experience. You'll sit there and... Because the, the chair... Yeah, I won't be, I'll be like, oh, they shouldn't have put the rain at this moment. They should have held it back. You know, I, I think that... You know, because I'm not involved in that. They, that. That's something they do themselves, and I'm sure I'll be... You know, you have to go go and see it. If you've made a movie and they've done a 4DX version of it, you have to go and see it. For the rest of the audience, what what would be the best format to see it? In the IMAX or what's the the one that you prefer? Yeah, I think IMAX is particularly good. It was shot intentionally dual aspect ratio. So, and you do really, you know, when you get to see it and the whole, uh, your whole vision is, 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 that that, that is pretty spectacular. But, you know, just go and see it, frankly. <laughs> so people can just go and see it on November the 4th? Yep, November the 4th. Yep, for, um, and I presume it's going to be an awards contender. I presume that we're, that we're at this end of the year and it has, you know, at the beginning it's Academy Award nominee. I mean, it's... Uh, oh God, yeah, who knows? Well, get it out there first and hope people go and see it. I think that's the main, main I thing. I think it'll be very well received. I think that it's really terrific. I think it's really, really scary if you're, if you're scared of heights. But I think the, the reason it is is because you actually care about those two people. It's not, you know, it wouldn't work if you didn't care about them. So congratulations, thanks very much. We look forward to the film opening on November the 4th. Thank you very much. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. 
plushcare.com slash weight loss. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Moving on now to, I'm going to show you a trailer for a film which was out in cinemas recently, the second part of which is going to be in cinemas hopefully next year. This is shaping up as one of my favourite films of this year so far. Do you think she suspects you creeped down to our bed? Mm. I thought we'd put Anthony down the end. It's not that kind of relationship anyway, is it? If she does, that was an amazing performance. I mean, you've changed quite a lot since she came, haven't you? Mm. But how is that working out for you? Be arrogant. I think it'll get you far. Because you are arrogant. I know I'm arrogant. Do you find yourself sexy? Yes. What makes you want to leave your own experience so radically and enter into this very different world? I want to not live my whole life in this very privileged part of the world I come from. I don't want to be in that bubble my entire life. Please welcome one of the most important and distinctive filmmakers of our generation, Joanna Hogg. Joanna, um, congratulations on Souvenir. At the end of Souvenir, it says, coming soon, Souvenir Part 2. How soon? Uh, not that soon. Okay. <laughs> not that soon. And I'm terrified, having seen all those dreadful sequels. Um, hope you're not going to play mine <laughs> in a Actually, few you know, years. That hadn't even occurred to me. I now realise that's like I set you up. I'm really sorry. <laughs> we must plan this better, you know. <laughs> So, so where are you with it now? You've shot, it's all shot. We shot, we finished shooting in the middle of July and now we're quite near the beginning of the edit. Okay. And uh, I'm, uh, yes, it's strange even seeing the trailer because I haven't watched part one now since we finished mixing it, which is, wow, probably nearly a year ago. Did you shoot, you shot them all together because it was always in, envisaged as the, t as the two parts? Yeah, unfortunately we didn't shoot them together. I would have really liked that because I wanted to not... Uh, I, I didn't want to make part one and then... Well, I didn't want the danger that no one would let me make part two if I didn't shoot them together. So um, that wasn't possible from a okay. financial point of view. So we shot um, part one now two summers ago and then so a couple of years in between and then the strange thing of going out in the world with part one, um, knowing I sort of wanted to stay in my creative bubble and not come out and talk about part one until I finished part two. But hey, yeah. So I've, I'm, I'm glad that we've dragged you out to do that. I read, because um, I reviewed the film in The Observer and I really, really like you, and I'm a fan of your work anyway. Um, and then somebody said, oh, but you're not reading any reviews until after part two is finished. That's right, yes. I mean, with a, with a very particular reason um, um, for that, which is I, I, I don't want to become self-conscious about what I'm doing with part two because they're so connected. The part two starts where part one ended up. Okay. And I didn't want to find I'd read something like someone says, oh, I don't like that character, and then I'm featuring that character a lot in part two, or, or something good or bad, actually, that would, that would sort of undermine what I was doing. I really wanted to just stay within that story and not sort of come out and, and, and become self-critical in a way. 
And the film is inspired by, a, a, as far as I understand, Joe, and correct me if I'm wrong, it is inspired by a relationship that you, that you had, and a lot of what we see is actually at least close to experiences that you had firsthand. <laughs> That's right. I mean, I'm actually... Um, I, it's hard to, to say now, even for myself, what, what, what happened and what didn't. It's sort of been rewritten in a sense. But yes, it is, it's loosely based, I would say loosely based, on, on, on a relationship I had and on a, actually a sort of point in time um, when I was um, starting to make films or I was at film school and, and, and had this relationship which was... Um, a great distraction actually when I was learning how to make films even though um, for anyone who's seen the film that the, the, the man um, that Julie the main character has the relationship with is, is actually very um, fond of cinema himself and in, in a way encourages her in her filmmaking endeavours Yeah um, There is a sense of mystery about the character um, the, through the whole film you don't really know him he says he's one thing he says he's another thing how much do you actually because I read somewhere that you you remain as as enigmatically uncertain about the, the the character that inspired this even now that's that's true actually and part of uh, part of the the second part without sort of giving too much away yeah. about it is in a way um, that that sort of detective work, trying to discover for myself too who, who who this person was, and it's interesting actually. Since part one has come out, a few people have come have contacted me who knew the original man. Um, they maybe were at university with him in the early seventies, or had had come across him. And I and in a way, I, I keep uh, feeling inspired by the story, even though I finish filming part two because I'm 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 learning. I keep learning new things about this person. And that, in a way, the, the the man that I saw was only one facet of somebody who would present himself in completely different ways to different people that he met in his life. Because he says he's from the he works at the Foreign Office. He says he's this. He says he's that. And then there's a dinner party scene in which which we saw a little bit in which somebody suddenly says, "Well, of course you do know this whole other side about him, which she doesn't know." And I, I mean, one of the things I felt about the film was every single scene rang true. I want to show a clip which seems to be a completely incidental clip of the two of them lying together in a bed. And it's very funny and it's very charming and it's very good. But it seems completely honest. Can you just say something about... Because am I right in thinking that you don't script the words? You, say, you tell the actors where the conversation has to go and let them do it. How does it work? Well, that's right. And actually, the, the, well, I, I, I work... I don't write a conventional script. So, yes, exactly. A lot of the dialogue is coming out when we're all working together and, and the actors are improvising and in a way I'm improvising too because I realise what I enjoy is, is discovering as I go along, as I create a piece of work and sort of not knowing myself. So I put myself in that position of improvising and I think that for me is the most exciting thing about making films. Um, so, in the, it, so a lot of credit to Honest Winton Byrne um, and this Tom is her Burke. first. It's her, I mean, he obviously he has a, a stellar career, but it's her first acting role, major acting role. She was in a documentary before, but but, but no, no, I mean it's completely her first uh, acting role or role in in in, in a piece of fiction. Um, so she's uh, incredible. I mean, she just took to it so easily in a way. But a lot was the chemistry between Tom and Honor and this scene. 
um, which you're going to show, is, is not so much something that I rem remember in the relationship that I had, but something that came out of just setting the scene. In a way, what I do as a director is I kind of set a scene, there are certain parameters, and then I allow this sort of life, these performances to come out of, of, of a particular moment in time. So Tom and Anna created the scene in a way with, with, with a few props. Yeah, let's see. I mean, I honestly think this is one of the most brilliantly... Now, I mean, there's so much going on, and yet there appears to be so little going on, which I think is... So let's have a look. You came closer to me and took up more of the bed. And you're already, I would say, further over than I am. That's not true. It is true. No, it's not. I haven't got you that have much bed dysmorphia. <laughs> And you, then you accuse me of... I wasn't trying to cross any sort of threshold. <laughs> I have not got that much room. You've got a foot on that side. That's and I literally... I'm on a ledge. I just... Honestly, I marvel at how you managed to to make that look as natural and, and realistic as it is. And this is the other thing about the film. Although it's a very, in many ways, strange and brittle separated relationship, I did think it was your, your most intimate and most accessible film. I mean, I felt it was your warmest movie, despite the, the chilliness that sometimes surrounds their relationship. Is that okay? Is that, do you feel the same way? No, I, I, I think I, I, I knew... I mean, it wasn't that I consciously set out to make a warmer film, but I knew exhibition had a certain sort of distance to it and a kind of chilliness to it. I mean, I really like it. But, it, but um, this story, which actually my husband is in the audience, every few years would keep saying, oh, that, that story you told me about that relationship you had would make a really good film. And I usually, uh, I kept sort of dismissing it and I sort of felt that it was just a bit too close to home in a way. I mean, I feel I go very close to home yeah, no with sure. my films, actually. But this sort of, I wasn't sure that actually um, I was going to be able to tell the story because, because of what you said earlier, of not understanding um, the, the Anthony character played by Tom. I thought, well, that's going to be a sort of failing in not understanding him. And then, and then I realised it dawned on me that actually I should incorporate that uh, that that sort of lack of understanding it, it, within the story, in a way, and that that it, yeah, it, I I thought well, I'm it's a, it's her impression, it's her story in many ways. And how 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 tonally similar? I don't want to ask you, but how tonally similar shall part two be? Is it a very different beast? Uh, oh, it's so hard to say because I literally you know just been in the cutting room um, today, and I and it's it it. it editing I mean I, I, I'm, I take a long time with part one it took about eight months and you're discovering so much because of this way of working the, 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 the edit becomes also part of the, the, the filmmaking in terms of telling the story and working out structurally how it's going to go and I really enjoy changing the structure at that stage and I, I, it's definitely, uh, it definitely opens up and it's got the, the sort of musical box that I feel I've opened up in, with part one, because in my previous films I didn't use music very much, but now this box has opened up and I'm just so excited by the potential of music. Yeah. And so that I take further in, in, in part two, so there are kind of exciting and you musical have elements. brilliantly and almost seamlessly led me into 
the next part of this, which is the BFI are doing a musical season. And I know you're a fan of musicals. I have to say, I was really surprised to find this out the first time I, I, I met you. You came to Shetland to the film festival that Linda and I co-curate, and it was an honour to have you there. And uh, and you started talking to my daughter about musicals, and I, you were suddenly like, you, I hadn't expected this at all. I'm going to show the, just the trailer for the for the BFI musical season, and then we asked you to pick a couple of things that you that you really liked. Okay, so this is the trailer for the BFI musical season, which is well, you'll see the trailer. It's pretty fab. Baby, I'm not good enough. Yes, you are. You're an original. Nothing's impossible. It's up to you! Give it all you got! So, so I said, okay, look, just pick a couple of titles that you know that you really like, and I know it's very hard because there's so many things in there. Um, you picked two that I thought would just quickly show clips from. The first was Sweet Charity. Well, tell me about why and what you love about it. Well, actually, it's a film I've just rediscovered because in the um, LFF, uh, one of the one of the sections of the LFF I love. Um, the most, in a way, are the treasures, so the films that have been um, restored and, and films that we haven't seen in a particular way for a long time. And I noticed Sweet Charity was one of those films that yeah. has just been restored. In a 4K. In, in 4K, yeah. and it's incredible on a, on a big screen. In fact, I saw it in here, and honestly, my mouth was open the, the whole way. And I think it is showing again, uh, I think, on the 24th of November. This isn't really a plug for it because I've got no reason to plug it except that I absolutely um, adored it. Um, and I saw it when I was young. I, I loved musicals from a very young age. Yeah. I took tap dancing classes because of Gene Kelly and obviously singing in the rain, the bandwagon. I mean, there's so many um, that I love. But, the, but, but it was just seeing it the other day or re-watching or re it the other day um, here. And just uh, I'm a fan of Bob Fosse anyway and I somehow thought maybe Sweet Charity was one of his lesser good films and that it would have dated a lot because it was made in the late 60s and I have to say it just was is so alive and makes you feel so good and in these rather depressing times it's just a, a real a real uh, pick me up and and Bob Fosse's choreography and his direction because one of the things that I love about musicals is 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 the rhythm I think cinema anyway whether it's got music or not is about rhythm and uh, and he's Bob Fosse has got rhythm and I'm sort of envious in a way somebody who's a choreographer and a director I'd love to be a choreographer I think um, because I love dance so much so it's um, it's a real treat for any of you who have a chance to go and see it hey, you've sold it let's see a clip <laughs> flip your wings and fly to daddy flip your wings and fly to daddy flip your wings and fly to daddy fly 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 to daddy take a dive and swim to daddy I take a dive and swim to daddy I take a dive and swim to daddy It's, it's genuinely electrifying. And also, I'll tell you, um, I have this rule that you can get from any great movie to The Exorcist in one move. <laughs> Do you know how? 
Shirley MacLaine is the character that Chris McNeil was based on because she was a friend of Bill Blatty's because he used to share a room with Warren Beatty. And originally, Shirley MacLaine, that's why she's called Chris McNeil, was going to play uh, Chris McNeil in The Exorcist. And then it didn't happen. But I got to interview uh, Shirley MacLaine once, and she had that thing about, you know, the thousand watt light bulb that you were in a room with her, and the whole room was full of Shirley MacLaine because she was just so fantastically charismatic. That, sorry, I was just talking. That's a, okay, so <laughs> you, now you chose another Fosse as well. What was it? Yeah, uh, All That Jazz, which, um, which is, I think, probably uh, for me, his, uh, my favourite one. And I think it's because it's uh, also his autobiography, in a way, so incredibly personal to him. And it incorporates, well, it, he incorporate, incorporates a lot into the film. He was um, editing... Lenny at the same time that he was creating Chicago, the stage musical, and he uses those um, those projects within the film, but then he's also um, susceptible uh, to, to a heart attack, and, and he, he just brings everything into uh, yeah, a sort of melting pot of his life. Can you remember when you first film. saw it? Uh, I think I saw it when it came out yeah. in 1979, actually. Yeah, so um, did I, and it really blew my mind. Yeah. And get to The Exorcist in one move. <laughs> I'm really bad at this. Roy Shire, the French connection, William Friedkin, Exorcist. Right, see the clip. You better change. You better stop. You better change. You better stop. You better change. You better stop. You better change. You better stop and change your ways today. I said stop. Change. Stop, please. Cut. It was one of the first musicals that made, you know, when you go and see horror movies or whatever it is, you have that kind of, I remember seeing that, and I never knew that, that, that a musical could be like that. I mean, I always had the idea that they were kind of slightly old and stayed, and that was the first thing that made me think, wow, musicals are sharp and contemporary and fabulous. Yeah, yeah. No, I think I felt the same thing. And in his editing of, of all the sequences, not just of the dance sequences, but the way he intercuts uh, different moments in the film, and, and you really get a sense of, yeah, this man, this... Um, this choreographer and this complicated life he leads with these different women and I think it's so um, yeah it, it seems so much so accurate to his life I, I know there was the TV series um, recently but which I haven't seen but I, mean, I, I just I, I, I feel I don't really want to watch that would you direct a musical uh, I would I would if I was given the chance I would okay so after yeah. souvenir two you know if somebody came to you and said we've got a you, you do it well, actually, I have an idea for a musical. Oh, great. Can so, you give any... Um, no, no. Disco? <laughs> <laughs> you seem to think I'm going to make a disco film. I well, do, I mean, because I'm, I'm, you, yeah. I thought... I, I may have misheard you. We were in Shetland, and I thought you said, I'm making a disco film. And I thought, you're remaking Roller Boogie, that's great. But then it hasn't happened. So I want you to make a disco film just so that it makes me seem like I knew what I was talking about. <laughs> well, maybe you'll inspire me to make one. But I, but I, I do want to make a musical. And, and the idea I have is... I mean, it's not going to happen overnight because you need quite a lot of money to do a musical, I think, to do it really well. And that's not going to yeah, come overnight. 
Listen, uh, we have uh, overrun, so it's time to, to to rush out. So Tom Harper's Aeronauts opens in cinemas on November the 4th. Wash Westmoreland's Earthquake Bird is on Netflix in the next couple of weeks, towards the end of November. And Joanna Hogg's Souvenir 2 is in cinemas as soon as she can, you know, get herself together to get it finished, because it's like you've had a little bit of time. And the BFI musical season is currently playing. Thank you ever so much, everybody, for coming. I hope you've all enjoyed yourself. See you next month. Goodbye. Thanks for listening to this Kermit on Film podcast, which came live from the BFI South Bank. That show happens every month at the South Bank in London. If you're interested in getting tickets and attending the event live, then just go to the BFI website. And if you've enjoyed the podcast, remember to subscribe. Thanks for listening. Small details are big surfaces, tight corners are odd shapes, flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rustolium.